So uh, what we're going to do here is, as I promised, this is a shiur p'ticha. Now, the way that a shiur p'ticha works in yeshiva uh, is that um, is that sometime, usually during, um, let's say, the end of the summer, you get an announcement from the yeshiva which masachet you're learning and perhaps which right. chapter is going to be the focal point of the beginning of the study. And on the um, opening in our yeshiva on, on Monday, the opening Monday, so the, the Rosh Hashiva comes up, gets up and gives what we call a shiur klali. Shiur klali, or shiur klali uh, in English, I guess, is, um, <laughs> is uh, given to the whole yeshiva. It's not by class. And it is given on a topic. It's kind of like what we do. In fact, I've modeled the dive after the shiur klali model where we take a topic that may be somewhat tangential or may be absolutely core to the suit we're dealing with and explore it either for purposes of, if it's tangential, to take the opportunity to look at something that's off topic because you don't do that in the normal course of study, or the opposite, if it's core, to establish some things that will help you during your study. So the shiur p'ticha is almost always something core. And it's going to be something at the beginning of whatever chapter is being studied um, or a critical sugya relating to that, um, and something that will help set the tone and set up the conceptual framework for the study for the next few months, perhaps. Um, and as I mentioned, what Rav Lichtenstein uh, Zatzal would do at the Shiur Ptiha, uh was that he would give the Shiur Ptiha, and the Shiur Ptiha was not 58 minutes, it was two hours was the beginning. And then afterwards, uh, he would then do a skira, a, uh, a kind of a scan or a, or a, 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 a summary sort of of the rest of the masachet, identifying different sugyot along the way that were significant. Um, and he would always say, you know, and our plan this month is to get this far. And it was always about three times as far as we ever got. But that was the plan. And he would also identify which significant Rishonim are available on that Masechet that might not be the standard fare. Uh, and so it was really just a remarkable thing. I can't come close to it. I'm not going to try to come close to it. But what I am going to do is give Shiur. You already saw the source sheets, and I'll put them up right now. I am going to give Shiur on the topic uh, that is that drives the entire first set of Sugiot in Psachim. So as a quick introduction to the introduction to the introduction. Um, the first parak, or the first part of the first parak, is devoted to a mitzvah de Rabbanan of bidikat chametz, an obligation midirabanan to check and find chametz. That obligation is driven by a mitzvah from the Torah and two mitzvot lotase from the Torah, which involve the possession of chametz. And so we're going to look at those mitzvot, and we're going to keep bidikat chametz in the background. And next week, Amir Tzashem, we're going to look at something that is B'dikar Chametz, although we're going to actually look at a, uh, a specific, uh, a, a critical Shas Sugya that comes up in the context of B'dikar Chametz, which is about Berchat Mitzvot. So I'll put the, um, the source sheet up right now. I can't promise we're going to do the whole thing. There's a lot here. I'm also going to give, give um, a little bit of an introduction to Midrash Halakha because it plays a critical role in this whole piece. Now, unlike Eruvin, when we come to when we come to almost anything in Psachim, we are dealing with serious heavy Tanakh text, serious heavy Chumash text, because in Eruvin, 
we we fetched a little bit here. Moshe telling people not to do it, going out to collect the man, etc. Uh, here we're talking about psukim, 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 which means we're also talking about a lots of midrash halacha, and almost everything we do is going to be in one way or another midrash halacha. We'll see. Okay, I haven't even brought all of the critical makorot, but I've brought the key four verses um, that that uh, animate this entire piece. Okay, um, Shmot Yudbet. Shmot Yudbet is a long chapter which starts out with a very famous passage, the commandment to take the uh, lamb in on the 10th of the month, hold it in the house for four days, on the 14th to slaughter it in the afternoon, that night to eat it, ready to go, and not to leave the house, the blood on the doorpost, etc. And uh, and then, in starting in Pasuk Chafalif, Moshe calls the people together, tells them what to do, and then informs them, based on the psukim we're going to see here, that this uh, Pesach is going to be an annual celebration, not just a one-time-in-history celebration, all right? And then we hear the narrative of, uh, of B'nai Israel doing it, uh, B'nai Israel starting to leave, then some mitzvot about the Pesach, and then the Parsha Vo ends, we're going to see it here in Source 2, with a, uh, a, a sort of a... Um, Another framework of the same mitzvot of matzah, nochametz, korban pesach, haggadah, and tefillin is put in there, right? But we're going to focus right now, going in order, on the end of Parshat HaChodesh, the end of Parshat HaChodesh, source one. And this is new information, because up until this pasuk, as far as we're concerned, the whole event of a korban pesach is a one-time deal, because there's going to be makat b'chorot that night, and you have to stay inside the house and be protected in the house. And the way you're protected in the house is by having a korban and having the dam on the door. Okay, and so then new information. This day is now going to be a commemoration. Commemoration means you're not doing it when it's happening. You're doing it on the anniversary of when it happened or something like that. Right? So it's a perennial uh, and eternal celebration. Shivat Yamim, here we go, Matzot Tochelom on the top line. Ach Payom Harishon, Tashpitu Soor Mibatechem. Now this is the beginning of everything we're dealing with. Ach, and we're going to leave that word untranslated right now. On the first day, you shall. Tashbitu. Now, Tashbitu seems to mean somehow get rid of or not have anymore. Soor, and Soor is another word which we sort of see as parallel to Chametz, but not exactly. Chametz is a result, Soor is the catalyst. So, in simple terms, you'd say Chametz is risen dough and Soor is yeast. Now, Soor is not yeast, Soor is any leavening agent. So Tashbitu Soormi Batechem, but for halachic purposes, for almost everything, Soor and Chametz are seen as equal. So Tashbitu Soor, that is a mitzvah, as you could see, the Torah presents it in the affirmative, you shall get rid of Soor from your house. Which, by the way, means that at this point, uh, it sounds like if you, um, if you have no Chametz in your house, that you maybe have to get some so that you can fulfill this mitzvah, maybe. 
And now we're given a reason. Why do you have to get rid of it? Because if you eat chametz, then you get karet. Which, by the way, tells you that only chametz does not carry karet with it. And that the Torah seems to have given a reason for getting rid of chametz because you might come to eat it. Now, that doesn't mean in practical terms that if there's no way in the world you're going to eat it, you can own it such as you're going away for the entire yontif, that you can still own it, but that's the way it's couched here. Now, So the first day and the seventh day are holy day. Here's, here's where Ochal Nefesh comes in. This is the one source that on Yom Tov, which is not Shabbat, you can do Malacha, which is for eating. Now, just one thing I want to go back to in the red passage above, in Pasuk Tedvav. I said, on the first day, you get rid of Soor. What's the first day? And the problem is that the first half of the Pasuk says, for seven days you eat Matzot. We call that Chag Matzot. And that means the festival of Pesach. Then it says that on the first day, you have to get rid of Chameitz. So, um, like, doesn't that mean you get rid of Chameitz on the first day of Yantif in the morning? And that's a little bit strange because we all know you get rid of chametz before the whole party starts. So what's by Yom HaRishon? The Gemara deals with that. It's something that we'll see in the daf. We'll see a touch of it today. Um, okay. Pasuk Yod Zayin, Ushmartem Atam Matzot, Kiba Etzim HaYomazeh, Otsaiti Tzvotechem Eretzitzvayim. Right? You should guard the matzot. Exactly on this day, I took out your hosts from Egypt. Ushmartem Atam Yomazeh, Adorotechem Chukat Olam. Keep this day for generations as an eternal law. Barishon, and Barishon here means the first month. On the 14th day at night, tochlu matzot. So you're going to start eating matzot on the 14th at night, which is the 15th, the night after the 14th. Until the 21st. Sounds like, by the way, it's a mitzvah to eat matzah all seven days, not just to avoid chametz. And that raises the question, of course, is why we don't make a bracha on matzah all the rest of the days. We dealt with that. In one of our Sukkot Shiri. Okay, back to the red. Shivat Yamim Soor Lo Now remember, above the first passage that I highlighted indicated an affirmative commandment to get rid of or no longer own or somehow disabuse yourself of Chametz. Here, there is a Lota say, Soor and literal translation shall not. And I and put their translations here because translations always do more to mislead than to help. And they guide you to think of the thing in one way, and Midrash is all built on seeing Sukim as a prism, and seeing the Torah as a prism, and each Pasuk as having the potential of infinite refractions of the light. Soor may not be found in your houses. Now, if I only had that phrase, and I'm I'm just jumping the gun on the Midrash Halakha here, if I only had that phrase, then what is the prohibition? This is a lota say. So or So if I only have the phrase, what phrase? What's the prohibition? You can unmute yourself. Just at the spacebar. To not have it in the house. Right, which means I could have it in the shed. I could have it outside. I could have it in a storage place. Right. Good. All right. Uh, by the way, with this. Prohibition, the way that it's worded, include chametz that is in a locked cabinet. In and your people, house? And people have the key. But it's it's covered, it's buried, covered up. 
what is the wording? The wording is lo yimatzeh, shall not be found. Means seeing it isn't the issue. So its existence in your house seems to be a problem. Okay? Hikolochel, machmetzet, etc., etc., etc. Okay. But we're not done. Because in the next parasha, or the next parak actually, in Parashat Kadesh, we get the following. And this is the, after, and as we're leaving, we're getting these mitzvot. Evidently, if depending on the, how you read the chronology of it, we're getting these mitzvot relating to the annual Pesach, not the one-time Pesach. Alright, this worship. We looked at this last week because we looked at tefillin in the context of this. For seven days you eat matzot. The seventh day is a holiday. Matzot yachel eight shivata yamim. Matzot shall be eaten for the seven days. And here we go. Velo yerayelacha chametz. Velo yerayelacha soor. Bechol gvulacha. Now, what's changed? What's Seeing changed? it. What? Seeing. Seeing. Not having it be seen. Which means that, theoretically, if I cover it up, I should be okay. Right? Not seen. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what else has changed? Look at the green words, the words that are highlighted in green. All of your boundaries. Which means? Also. Which means? Oh, like the shed as well. Exactly, in your backyard, in the storage unit, anything that's in your territory. So if I want to splice and dice, I could end up saying, okay, chametz, cannot be found anywhere in your house, even buried. But it could be anywhere else that you own as long as it's not visible. And if I were some sort of bizarre Karaite, and by the way, Karaites also had their nutcases, if I was a bizarre Karaite, maybe I would do that. Okay, now, we're not done, there's one more passage. In Sefer Dvarim, there is a very difficult, I'm gonna show you the difficulties right now, even though they have nothing to do with what we're doing, just because there's so much fun. In Sefer Dvarim, there is a presentation of the Shalosh Galim. We just read it on Shmini Atzeret, uh, which is at the end of Re'e. And this passage starts as follows. Ramor and Chodesh Ha'aviv, Ve'asita Fesach L'Adonai Lo'echa. Right? So make sure that it's the month of springing and therefore blooming, and therefore that's how we know they have to intercalate so that we pay, make sure that Nisan is in the spring. And make a Pesach. God took you out during the Aviv. Make sure your Pesach is in the Aviv. Okay. I want you to tell me as soon as you see a problem here. What does that mean? What does that mean? Right. What's the problem? Son Uvakar. What does Son Uvakar mean? What? Son is the flock and Bakar is the herd. Are you allowed to bring Korban Pesach from the herd? No. Absolutely not. It has to be Son. So this is a problem. All right, not our problem. I just want to show you that this passage brings up certain problems. 
Later on in this passage, there also is another problematic pasuk. We don't have it here. It's the next pasuk. It is uvishalta v'yachalta. You shall cook it and eat it, and then the next morning leave and go back to your place. What's wrong with that? How do you prepare korban Pesach? Roasting. roasting. You're not allowed to roast it. You're not allowed to cook it. Sorry. You're not allowed to have cook it. It has to be roasted on the fire. And here it says uvishalta. So just pointing out, Midrash Halakha has lots and lots and lots of work cut out for it when it comes to the, the passage about Pesach. But it'll have its work cut out for us, for it in, in our context also. Does Bishalta, does Bishalta define how you cook it? Or is it just a general term, term of preparing it? It's, it's the term that describes, here's what you do with the Pesach. Bishalta v'yachalta. Good. Mm -hmm. Now, the Torah and the other end, Shmot says, you're not allowed to cook it. Right? So which is it? Right. So I'm not going to, uh, the answer would be a whole sheer. But I just want to point out that this passage brings with it, and the other passage about Pesach bring with them some really fun challenges within the world of Midrash Halacha for solving the laws of Pesach. But let's take a look at our problem. In Pasuk Dalit, it says, right, which, by the way, looks like an exact cut-and-paste job from Source 3. Right? And it is. So what we have here is as follows. We have a mitzvah say this first source, Tashbitu. We have two mitzvot lotaseh, one of them showing up once, one of them showing up twice. And the one that shows up twice, lo yera elacha, in the first occasion says, lo yera saor. And the second one just says saor, but adds shivat yamim. And they are, and that's defined as b'chol gulacha, and the lo yimatzeh is b'vatechem. Okay, those are the keep sukim we have to deal with when we're talking about, as the title says, bal yera'e and bal yimatzeh. One word about the word bal, not baal, but bal. Baal is a, another word for load. And in rabbinic literature, it's not in the Tanakh, in rabbinic literature, when they want to reference a lotase, so that you don't get confused as if the rabbi is actually telling you what to do, but just to reference it, they use Baal instead of lo. So for instance, the Torah says, lo tashchit, you shall not destroy the fruit trees. We refer to it as Baal. Baal Tashchit. Oh, we're, oh. we're not saying don't do it. We're saying we're referencing the quote, the prohibition of doing it. So Lo Yira'en, Lo Yimatse are, are throughout rabbinic literature are represented by Baal Yira'en and Baal Yimatse. And by the way, the very frequent uh, uh, acronym for it is BB. Sorry. But it is. Bet Yud, Bet Yud. Right? Baal Yira'en, Baal Yimatse. Uh, and that uh, happened uh, well before the Likud party was formed. Okay, um, now, Midrash Halakha, here we go. Now, a couple things about Midrash Halakha. Um, Midrash Halakha really is not a book. It's a genre, but, the, but it, it, it's really not a title, right? It's a, it's a result. The, what we're really talking about is Midrash Tanaim. And you will find that in this book, Michilta, and if you look in this Michilta, and you look in this Sifri, all sources, four, five, and six, are all from books of Midrash Tanaim. 
Every name mentioned in this book is a name of somebody you know from the Mishnah or from Breitot. There is nobody after the generation of Rebbe who's mentioned in here. Now, what are these works? Right? You, you know the Mishnah, you know the Gemara. What are these works? So, quick introduction, but a necessary one. There are two forms of presenting halacha. There is a form which is um, which is what we call Talmud, which is presentation of a source in the Torah using a methodology that's laid out in front of you and then a result. So you have a source, you have a method, you have a result. You have a discussion back and forth whether that's the result that should, should flow from there or a different result or whether that's the tool you should use or a different tool. That is all called Talmud, and that is what we refer to if it's in halachic context as Midrash Halacha. And that's something that by and large was engaged in, engaged in by the Tanaim. Um, important note here is that there were, in the second generation in Yavne, there were two clearly defined and separate schools of Midrash Halacha. One of them was the school of Rabbi Ishmael, and one of them was the school of Rabbi Akiva. You know the school of Rabbi Ishmael because the class rules right at the front of the room. Rabbi Ishmael, the 13 hermeneutic rules of Rabbi Ishmael's school. Rabbi Akiva's school had other rules, and they had different approaches, and the different approaches are best summarized with these two statements. Rabbi Akiva, if you recall the story of Moshe Rabbeinu, the Agadav Moshe Rabbeinu in Menachot, all right, you, as soon as I tell you, you'll remember it. Moshe Rabbeinu comes up to Shemaim to get the Torah, his Menachot Chavtet, and he sees HaKadosh Baruch Hu putting crowns on the letters. Now, the difficulties in taking this Midrash literally are such that you would probably have to be a heretic to take it literally, and for so many ways. So we're not going to go there. But whatever it may mean, uh, seeing God as the one who's actually physically writing a Torah, the Rambam right away would throw you out of the Beit Midrash and call you a heretic. Um, uh, idea of crowns, crowns only appears on Ketav Ashuri, it's Ketav Ivri, Lo doesn't matter. The point of the Midrash is to, the Agadah is to, is to get a certain idea across. Moshe Rabbeinu asks God, why are you putting crowns on the letters? And what's God's answer? Take you to the Beit Midrash of Rabbi Akiva. That, that a thousand years from now, 1500 years from now, there's going to be a guy coming along named Akiva ben Yosef who is going to darshan on every little leg of a crown, mound, mounds of halakha. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Let me see him. So, the first thing Moshe Rabbeinu says, by the way, is you got a guy like that coming along and you're giving the Torah through me? So, according to Machshava, silence, that's the, my decision. Uh, which becomes important later on. So Moshe says, let me see him. So HaKadosh Baruch says, turn around. Moshe turns around and he finds himself in the eighth row of Rabbi Kiva's Beit Midrash. Why is that important? Because Rabbi Kiva's Beit Midrash had seven rows. So important note, he's, in, he's a fly on the wall. He's in the phantom row. And he hears Rabbi Kiva teaching and he cannot figure out what Rabbi Kiva is saying and he starts to feel terrible. And then finally the students say to Rabbi Akiva, Rebbe Minayin Lacha, where's your source for this law? And Rabbi Kiva says, Halacha, the Moshe Misinai, 
Now Moshe feels good. Moshe goes back to Akkadish Baruch and says, You've shown me his Torah, let me see his reward. Akkadish Baruch says, Turn around. He turns around and he sees Rabbi Kiva being flayed alive on the cross by the Romans. And so he turns to Akkadish Baruch and says, Zu Torah, this is the greatness of Torah. This is the reward. And Akkadish Baruch again says, Silence is what I've decided. And okay. But the point is that Rabbi Kiva darshans in so many ways that Moshe Rabbeinu can't even recognize. Another one little famous thing about Rabbi Kiva is that Rabbi Akiva would darshan every time that the word et came along, he would darshan something from it. He would find some new information there. And he had, a, he had there was another fellow, Shimon Hamsoni, who did the same thing. And then Shimon Hamsoni got to the phrase et Adonai, like kabed et avicha vetimecha, et avicha extends it to your mother's new husband. And Eti Mecha extends it to your father's new wife. You have to honor them too. Right? And so the Et there is to, is to extend it. And then they said, turned to him and it said, the Pasuk says, Et Adonai Lecha Tira. What are you going to do with that? So he backed off and he said, I can't say anything. Because that sounds like I'm equating somebody else to God. And he couldn't say anything. Oh, yes. Right? And now, now, Rabbi Kiva comes along and says, Oh, in other words, Rabbi Kiva would darshan on every letter, on every, everything. On the other hand, there's this whole other statement, which is, The Torah speaks in regular human rhetoric. Don't get worked up over a slight twist of a word, an extra letter, etc. And that is a statement that was that is a quote from Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael also has a statement, Kol parsha any parsha which is repeated, lo nishnet but was only repeated because of the new information. In other words, you have a parsha of Gezel at the end of a parsha of Yikra, Yikra <coughs> you have another parsha that has the same rules in Bamidbar except it adds one other thing, which is if the guy you stole from was a ger who died without heirs, then you give the payments of the coin. That's the one and Rabbi Shmuel says, yeah, that the whole part is repeated for that new information. And you don't have to darshan all of the other things. So there's these two very different schools. Now, um, what, I'm, what I'm sharing with you now is, was essentially a groundbreaking observation, one that the entire Torah world and academic world together have, have subscribed to since, by none other than David Svihoff. And that is that these two schools um, were operating throughout the rabbinic period because oh, they're also okay. the students, Let me try and were, were um, um, a second. Let me get out of this. Hold on. Let me try and it. Okay, we're responsible for the, all of the, the Midrash Halacha. Right? And the Midrash Halacha comes from one of these two schools. So if you have uh, a midrash halacha that seems to be that, and and there's different nuances that each school has. Now the reason that's important is because the mechilta. Look at the name of the mechilta. Source four is the mechilta. What's the book? Mechilta to Rabbi Ishmael. And so you expect, and for the most part, you're going to find Rabbi Ishmael's style approach to midrash here. All right, we'll see it. When you get to the Sifri and Dvarim, the Sifri and Dvarim actually is from the school of Rabbi Akiva. Now, we were under the impression until very recently that each school contributed 
one commentary, which means Rabbi Ishmael was the author, his school was the author of the, the Chilta on Shmot, Sifra, which we're not touching today, but which is the most important book of Midrash Halacha, which is the the one on, on uh, how do you call it, on Vayikra, what is Rabbi Akiva school, right? Rabbi Yochanan says, Stam Sifra Rabbi Yehuda, the anonymous author author of uh, of uh, of Torah Kohanim is Rabbi Yehuda, is a student of Rabbi Akiva, and that Sifri on Bamidbar is Rabbi Akiva, and Sifri, uh, is Rabbi Yishmael, and Sifri on Dvarim is Rabbi is Rabbi Akiva. And then we started finding all sorts of little fragments of other commentaries, and it seems that very likely each school produced a full commentary on each one of the four halachic books of the Torah. And so we do have Mechilta the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai also around. Just like a quick introduction, now let's take a look at the text. Okay, Mechilta the Rabbi Shmael. Now, remember that the first thing that we said is that there's a mitzvah to destroy, to get rid of chametz. The problem is it says miyom harishon. You have to get rid of it miyom harishon. So here's the mechilta of Ishmael in blue, source four. Mi'erev yom tov. It has to be done on erev yom tov. Now watch the language. Ata omer mi'erev yom tov. You say it's erev yom tov. Maybe it's on yom tov itself, which means maybe you're supposed to get rid of chametz on the first morning of Pesach, after the Seder, night morning after the Seder. How do I know that I have to get rid of chametz before Pesach and not on the first day of Pesach itself? Because the Torah says I'm not allowed to own chametz when I'm shechting the Pesach. Okay? Now here's what we're dealing with. The Torah says um disabuse yourself of chametz, however you want to call it, on Yom Harishon, which the simple, again, the simple, bizarre, karyitic read of that would be to sit at the Seder while you got beer sitting right in the room and loaves of bread sitting around. And the next morning, you got to get rid of them. That's pretty bizarre to us, but that's what Yom Harishon seems to say. We all know it can't be, so what we got to figure out is how can we understand the psukim so that they fit with what we know, which is a strange way to say it, but that's what we're doing. Now, Rabbi Yonatan Omer, Einot Sarich. What does Einot Sarich mean? Doesn't mean I disagree with you. Rabbi Yonatan, by the way, is a student of Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Yonatan says, meaning, I have another way to prove what you're saying. The Torah says you're not allowed to do malacha on Yom Tov, except for food, right? Burning is a malacha. Now he's assuming that the only way to get rid of chametz is to burn it. So since you're not allowed to do malacha on Yom Tov, the Torah can't be commanding you to get rid of chametz on Yom Tov. Must be Erev Yom Tov. Now we suddenly find uh, Rabbi Yosei comes in. If you remember in the first Pasuk, we had the phrase ach. Remember I left it untranslated? Right? In the first red word, ach. So Rabbi Yosegli says, you know what the word ach means? Ach means partially. So that means partway through the first day. So the first day must mean the day before Yom Tov. 
because you know you're not allowed to own chametz on any part of Yom Tov. So if it's part of a day, it has to be part of the day before. Okay? And so you see that they are all dealing with this. Now, we're not going to go into Rabbi Yossi's take, but the interesting thing is that Rabbi Yossi, of course, is a student of Rabbi Akiva. The, the texts are not exclusive. They include works from the other school. And Rabbi Yossi here has a whole long development about chametz. Now, um, we get all the way to Rebbe. We get all the way down to the last generation of Tanaim, Rebbe. I want to show you the end of source four, and we're going to work our way through these sources, and then we're going to take a, a breath to do some question and answer. Rebbe Omer, remember we used that phrase. So only things which are under the ban of Right, so Rebbe, and they're trying to prove that the way to get rid of chametz is to burn it. So burning, it's the only sure way that you can make sure it won't be found, it won't be seen. Right, so that's how that's how he defines that. Now, if you recall, we had another problem. The one problem was the mitzvah say, which is to get rid of it. And the problem was Yom HaRishon. And you find the plethora of opinions, none of which say first day means first day of Yom Tov. It all means first day the day before Yom Tov. And a plethora of opinions of how we get there. Not halachic divergency, but a difference of the, the, the method by which we get to the conclusion we want to get to. Okay. The second thing, and this is, for our purposes, a little more intriguing, is source five. Also in the Mechilta. Remember the Torah said that you shall not have chametz um, found anywhere in your territory. Right, sorry, uh, seen anywhere in your territory. Lama Nemar, why do we need that pasuk? After all, the Torah already forbade us from only chametz. Why does that have to say it? It can't be found in your house. Maybe that's literal. Remember what we said before? That no, maybe it only means in your house. Well, the Mechilta says the same thing as you guys said, which is maybe it means in your house. Therefore, the Torah comes to balance it out by saying, anywhere in your property. So why does it say you can't have it seen in your houses? To say the following. And this is how Midrash Halacha works. What do we know about your house? Your house is something that you have control over. So therefore, when the Torah says you can't have it in your boundary, in your property, it has to be only property which you control. In other words, why does the Torah say the same thing twice? Don't own chametz. But it says it differently. It says it can't be in your house and it can't be in your property. It's there to tell you, of course, you can't have it in your property. But what kind of property? Well, just like everything in your house is something you have control over and you can do what you want with it, the only chametz that's prohibited outside your house and your property is chametz you have control over. What's excluded? Yatsachem social Yisrael So what's excluded? If I have chametz my property that really is owned by or is controlled by a non-Jew, like I'm watching it for, right? I could get rid of it. It's not, I don't own it. I don't have control over it. Since I don't have control over it, therefore. I'm not chayav to get rid of it. 
Yatsachem So what's been excluded? A non-Jew's chametz that he has entrusted to me. In certain conditions, and we're going to see that on Davav, Davzayin, under what conditions. What about a chametz that's been buried by a caven? What else? Anything in my house I have access to. So therefore, why does it compare the house to the property? To tell you that just like your house is something you have access to, similarly in your property, it's only things you have access to. What happens if you have a case of beer out in the shed, and the shed caves in, and now that case of beer is buried underneath two tons of rock? It's literally in your property. But you can't get to it. Since you can't get to it, you don't have to try to get to it. Taomer Maybe the Torah is actually saying something else, which is crazy, but we've got to play with this. Maybe it's coming to say that that chametz can't be in your territory for seven days and in your house forever, meaning the chametz that you get rid of from your house can't ever come back. Therefore, it says, So now, watch how the two balance each other. The house becomes a model to teach, just like with the house. You have control over everything, and it's your property. Similarly, only applies to things that are in your property and your control. And just like things out there are, are only for seven days, similarly, in your house, only for seven days. And what happens is the two parshiot now feed each other and inform each other. Okay, good. The last thing we're going to take a look at here, and they're going to bring the mics up for a sec, is the Sifri. Now, what's the Sifri? So just quick, quick, quick introduction. In um, in the, the rabbis themselves referred to um, the book of Vayikra. They didn't ever call it Vayikra. It's never called Vayikra by the rabbis. The rabbis call it Torah Kohanim. The rabbis have names for each of the Chumashim that are based on content, not based on the first word. So Torah Kohanim, Sefer Geula, Chomesh Pudim, Mishnei Torah, Sefer Yitzirah. It went out of order, but those are the five names they have. Right? And um, the commentary, the Midrash Tanaim on these books had their other names. And we don't, the names weren't given by the authors of the books. They're given later on. The um, the earlier name given to the Midrash on Vayikra was actually Torah Kohanim also. But once it was kind of formulated, finalized, evidently in the Beit Midrash of Rav, it was given the name Sifra. Sifra means the book. That's all it means, the book. Why is it the book? Because in the world of Halakha, Vayikra is the book of Halakha par excellence. There's only two narratives in Vayikra, the rest is all Halakha. And the most intricate halacha of Tumah Vitara, Machalot Asurot, and Yisrael Biyan, all sorts of things are in Vayikra. And so Sifra is like, and by the way, Sifra was the most studied compilation of Midrash halacha ever. There are more commentaries on it, and there are more versions of it, more Kitvayat of it, everything. The other books were called Sifra. Sifra means the other books. right? Sifra is the book, Sifra is the other books. Sifrei de Rav were the commentaries on Bamidbar and Dvarim. And the commentary on Dvarim here, which is out of the, the best published version we have, which is the Finkelstein version, uh, Sifrei uh, Dvarim is clearly from the school of Rabbi Akiva. Okay. Here you see what's happened very differently. 
and I laid it out in uh, black and blue doesn't mean that it's a painful thing to look at. It's, I just wanted to keep the Psukim in one font and the, and the uh, Tanaitic text in blue. This is from Dvarim. What's the Midrasha? So that means for seven days you can't see your chametz. You can see other people's chametz. Again, if a goy entrusts it to you, or you go to the market, or you drive down the street and somebody's holding a hamburger bun in the air, who cares? What's the next Gavoha. What's Gavoha? If it belongs to the Beit HaMikdash. So let's say that you have some item that was chametz and you were dedicated to the Beit HaMikdash. You don't have to get rid of it. It's something you're not going to mess with and it's not in the violation because it's not yours. It belongs to God. Uh, so the fourth drashra here is going to open up the door to the opening sugya, which is batel belibcha. How do you not see yours? In your heart, you say, it's not mine anymore. In your heart, that's all I have to do, is say it's not mine anymore. And then it's not yours. Now, this is a really interesting comment. This is in the Sifri, it's in the time of the Tanaim. And look what it says. From here, they said, who's they? The Tanaim. If somebody's on his way to Yushalayim to Shechtas Pesach, or he's on his way to, there's a whole Mishnah, to do a Brit Milan, he remembers that he has chametz back in his house. He stops where he is, wherever he is, and he says, I don't own the chametz. But notice here that they're referencing an already done Mishnah, which means probably that line is part of a later redaction. Okay. And as far as we're concerned, that's the critical part. Okay. Now I'm going to bring the bring you guys up here. Although you can actually unmute yourselves, you don't need me. Um, if you have any questions, any comments you want to make before we go into the next stage, just go ahead and ask. Okay, we'll the go to the next stage. What the mechilter of Shimon ben Yochai is? What that's Rabbi just... What is it? It's a. It's a. It's a. Work it was, I think, discovered like yeah. not not a long time ago, more recently. Uh, Hoffman uh, published it. Right, sure, the, sure. Yeah, you know, it goes back but, to the 19th century at least. And it is a mechilta, which is somewhat parallel, but certainly reflects more of a Rabbi Akiva esque type approach. Because Shimbayochai, of course, is a Tamil Muvak of Rabbi Akiva. Okay. By the way, just an interesting little note is that when Rabbi Shimba Yochai is quoted in a Rabbi Akiva school text. He's called Rabbi Shimon. When he's quoted into in a Rabbi Ishmael type text, he's quote called Rabbi Shimba Yochai. Oh. So I heard a, a, an interesting model for that of a way to understand it from something that I actually saw yesterday on the web. I saw um, I, every day I get a, a, a digest of all different things. And one of them had somebody, uh, oh, actually it was a tweet, a tweet essay yesterday. Somebody was writing about Rabaran's favorite, um, I don't know, favorite uh, sugi or whatever. And I'm looking at it, and to me, that means one thing. Rabaran, to me, and to all my friends, and my old is Rabaran Lechenstein. But you have to see who's writing it. And I realized he was talking about Rabaran Kotler, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a very interesting thing. So the example I heard is if you walk into 
Ponovich, and you say Reb Shimon, you mean one thing, which is Reb Shimon Shkop. Mm-hmm. Right? We have even Reb Shimon. That's it's there. Reb Elchanan, Elchanan Rashman. Everybody knows that's the, that's who you mean, right? Uh, and yet, if you go into let's say a Chassidish Yeshiva and you say Reb Shimon, certainly can't assume that they understand it to be that. So the same way, Reb Shimon Bar Ben Yochai, who was a Talmud Muvak of Reb Kiva in the Reb Kiva school, you say Reb Shimon. There's only one Reb Shimon. He's the one. In, in your Rabbi Shmuel school, you got to identify who it is, Shem Yochai. Which, by the way, is interesting. So, as we read stories in the Gemara and you see how he's referenced, uh, that's just something to keep in mind. Okay, now. Um, I have another question. Question? Far away. Far away. Okay, yeah. So, uh, Yom Rishon, doesn't that begin on the evening? So, you yeah, have to get rid of problem. all your. That's the problem. That's exactly what they're dealing with here. And you're going to get a, we're going to get a sugya like that in about five days. Uh, four, three days actually, uh, when the Gemara starts discussing how we know that Bitur Hametz has to take place on right. the 14th in the morning. Because it says, it should be the 15th in the morning. And we're going to have the things that you've seen here are going to accord with the Gemara. The Gemara quotes me to Tanaim. And an interesting okay. study is to see how close to the original text of the Midrash Tanaim is the Gemara, and then maybe our version of Midrash, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's complex. All right. Now I'm going to take you to what's going to be the last stage of, of this shiur today, and very likely, as often happens, this becomes a two-parter, but I, I, I really want to do Bechad Mitzvot next time, so we may leapfrog it. How many Mitzvot are there in the Torah? Yoter 613. 613, right? Okay. Yoter. What? More. Yeah, Yoter 616, but uh, close. Close enough for jazz, right? Okay, so um, there's 613 mitzvot. How do you know there's 613 mitzvot? It won't help to count them, because if you count them, you're going to end up with over 1,000. Is Lech Lecha a mitzvah? Right? Is Kol Asher Tomorrow a mitzvah? Rashi says so. Rashi says that what? I have Mitzvah Shemarti. Love and Garti and Shemarti. Oh, good. So in Midrash Agadah, right. Okay, so let's go a little bit earlier than Rashi to Rav Samloi, who was a third generation Amor in Eretz Yisrael, like time of Yochanan, a little after Yochanan. Who has a drasha that's recorded in Makot in the last sugya? The beginning of the last sugya of Makot is Darash Rab Simlai. Darash Rab Simlai. Here that means actually announced, publicly announced. Um, Boom. That's the one statement accepted by everybody. Everybody buys it. Everybody everybody subscribes to it. We accept. And the only other thing Rab Simlai says is 248 mitzvot say. 364 mitzvot, and that's the end of it. Which means we have no idea how he got this number. Did he count? And he had some sort of a system for deciding what goes in, what goes out, what things are mitzvot, what things are not, what things are one mitzvah, which things are two. Right? Is that one or two? Is the nesachim that you pour on the mizbeach when you do the korban a separate mitzvah, part of the korban? You could, you could spend your whole life trying to figure out how to come up with these numbers. And by the way, you wouldn't be alone because although in the times of Chazal themselves, there doesn't seem to have been an interest 
in determining what made up that list. A couple hundred years later, it became a very interesting thing. And Rav Shimon Kaira, who wrote a book in the ninth century called Halachot Gedolot, put together what we consider, assume is the first list of the mitzvot. And he included it in a Bikr Cholim, and it included it in Hanukkah, included all sorts of things that we have no reason to think were given the Moshe Sinai because they're not in the Torah, meaning there might be traditions that go back to Moshe Sinai, but they're not explicit mitzvot in the Torah. And then uh, Saidi Gaon um, did, had several versions of his, of his list of the mitzvot, uh, Harizi, several other Azharot, and then along came the great eagle, the Rambam, and he wrote Sefer Mitzvot, and most Sefer Mitzvot, by the way, he did it seemingly as an introduction to the Mishnah Torah, but he wrote Sefer Mitzvot in Arabic, unlike the Mishnah Torah. And Sefer Mitzvot, he prefaced with 14, we looked at this way back, I, I think it might have been Shabbat, we looked at it in um, in one of the earlier dives, Shurim, uh, he had 14 introductory paragraphs defining what makes the list. Right? And then he presented the mitzvot, mitzvot say, mitzvot lotase, and of course later on there's other literature, people who agree, disagree. There are numerous other monea mitzvot, and the literature thrived for several centuries. And so a student of Rabbeinu Tam, Ezra of Metz, wrote a book called Sefer Yireim, which is also minyana mitzvot, and not the same as the Rambam, and with a different kind of presentation. So I just want to show you very quickly here, um, Rav Sadia Gaon, who wrote a poem uh, of the 613 mitzvot, where each mitzvah was like a word or two. So it, it's really, it's, it's amazing uh, in its brevity and its, and its um, comprehensiveness. So in uh, the, we get to mitzvah to say number nun, he writes, Leva'er chametz v'lichlot. Get rid of chametz and to destroy it. question is whether that's one or two. The Rambam in the Sefer Mitzvot says the following. Um, I want to take you first to the Rambam here, source 11. Mitzvot say 156 out of 248. He should sivanu levaer chametz mi batenu So we're commanded to get rid of chametz from our house on the 14th of Nisan, and that's what we call hashpatat seor. Right and then he brings the pasuk, and he says you can find this in the first chapter of Psachim. Dafyomi, guys, be alerted. Okay. In the Yureim, you find a much longer treatment. Biur chametz, siva hakadosh baruch hu levaer chametz piyodal minisan achar chatzot hayom. Get rid of it after midday. Interesting. And then he gives the whole development in the Gemara how we find out that Yom Rishon is the 14th. And now in the highlighted, Now what is Biur? It means to nullify it and to be mafkir it. What's that mean? To disown it. And you have to physically get it out of your property. Which means it's not enough to just disown it. You have to actually get it out, which may raise a question. You get it out, what do you have to disown it for? Can I remember Psachim, Vidikar Chametz, Midrabanan, etc.? It's a sugi we're going to see very soon in a, in a day or two. Now, And then he says something else, which is the minute you've disowned it, you have essentially taken it out of your property. And that's it. 
which means theoretically you don't have to take it out of your property. All you have to do is disown it, and it's not yours anymore, and you're fine. Okay, that's as far as definitions of the mitzvah of tashbitu. Now, what about bal and bal yimatzei? So the Rambam in Sefer Mitzvot says, He commanded us that chametz should not be seen in our property for seven days, right? And um, He said, this and the next one are not about two different issues. The next one is bal yimatzei. But notice the Rambam counts them as two separate things, right? And he goes on in the details. The Uraim here has a very short thing. Seor lo yimatzei, lo lo And then he says, It's beautiful. You should fear God and do a, make a commemoration for the miracles he did, like HaKadosh Baruch Hu commanded. So he sees getting rid of chametz as a way of reenacting Yitzhak Mitzrayim because we had to get rid of chametz when we had the Korban, uh, from our house from the Korban Pesach, right? We were still allowed to eat chametz that whole week, by the way, that year, but um, had to get rid out of the house. So just a couple presentations from the mitzvot. I want to show you one last thing here before we go, keeping an eye on the clock. We'll go right up to 4.30 on the nose, but here's the Mishnah Torah. Now notice in at the in the second chapter of Hot Khametsu Matzah, the Rambam says the following. Mahi Hashpatazu Hamurabator. What does Hashpata getting rid of Khametz mean? He should Yivatel Hachametz Milibo. So what do you have to do? Just in your heart yeah. say I don't own it anymore. I don't say anything out loud. Vihashev Otoki Afar. Think of it as dirt. And just put your heart, I don't own any chametz. That's all you have to do. Midoraita. Gimel, of course, is the Durabanan, which the whole first paragraph, the first part of the first paragraph is devoted to, which is Bidikat chametz. Searching for it, finding it, and getting it physically out. That's what it is. Now, what's interesting is that here you have in front of you the first print of the Rambam. This is the first publication of the Rambam, which is, or it's an early one. It might not be the first one. Venice, 1550. I did a little research and look what I found. Here's the actual print, what it looks like. It's a little hard to read, so I typed it on the side. This is a dramatically different read of the Rambam. Same Rambam, same halacha, but dramatically different. The first one, which is our standard printed Rambam, says, what is hashpata? Consider it gone. Just consider it gone. Chameit sitting in front of you on the table, not mine anymore. That's good enough. According to this, Defus, what does it say? You have to get rid of any chameits that you know of out of your property. The stuff you don't know of, you get rid of in your heart. By the way, which one of those do we do? Think about Kochamira. Which one of those do we do? The first one, where we just simply say, I don't own it, or the second one, where we get rid of stuff that we know of, and the stuff we don't know of, we say, I don't own it anymore. We do both. Both. All right, so what do we say in Kochamira? It's it's like dust in the 
Got stuff I know of, stuff I don't know of. Right, so that's your homework. Take a look in a Haggadah. Take a look in Haggadah. And look at Kocham, but look at both of them. Look at Kocham here, you say. Both. You say the. What? Both. Yeah, good. So take a look at the Kochamira that we say at night after Bidikat Chametz, and then oh, look at the Kochamira we say in the morning when you burn it. And we'll find the difference, and you'll see that in the Rambam here. <coughs> right? But it's very hard for me to understand the Rambam as it's printed in front of us, because that would mean that Chametz that you have sitting right in front of you, me to all right, to all you have to do is just say, I don't own it, and that's it. Now, there's all sorts of, of, of tangential problems that come up here, which is the nature of, of Hefker and the nature of Beetle, and you need three for Hefker, et cetera. It's a sugi in the dharm. It's not such a simple thing that you just stand on your own and say it's Hefker, whether that would be valid, right? But the, the bigger problem here is the difference between this text and this text is, is, is worlds between saying that all you have to do is say, I don't own it, or you have to get rid of everything that you know of and the stuff you don't know of, you say, I don't own it. So take a look at the uh, at the Kochamira, and it's time for Mincha, and we uh, we with this new time we're able to get this done properly, and I will see you guys next week. Have a great Thanksgiving and enjoyable holiday. Stay healthy, and vaccines right around the corner, God willing. Thank you very much. So, yes. Thank you. Okay.